Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show hey good afternoon and welcome to the monday edition of the georgine rice show well as expected more than a thousand people gathered for the oregon march for life on saturday the 28th at the Oregon State Capitol in Salem, it was the first Oregon March for Life since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And it was certainly a joyous occasion in that that particular goal had been reached. But there's much work to be done. Meanwhile, a federal jury on Monday acquitted Catholic pro-life activist Mark Houck. He was charged with violating the FACE Act over a 2021 skirmish with a Planned Parenthood volunteer outside of Pennsylvania clinic. Now, the skirmish essentially consisted of he and his son praying, his relatively young son praying, the volunteer harassing the son and the father resisting the um, the individual from Planned Parenthood. Well, the FACE Act prohibits violent, threatening, damaging and obstructive conduct intended to injure, intimidate or interfere with the right to seek, obtain or provide reproductive health services. He has been acquitted of that charge. Meanwhile, Governor Tina Kotek announced details of her urgent request to state lawmakers to invest $130 million toward reducing the number of unsheltered Oregonians in 2023, also known as homeless. Currently, there are approximately 18,000 Oregonians experiencing homelessness in the state. I should say 18,000 experiencing homelessness. They're not all Oregonians. In fact, some states actually send their people here because we are so generous with our services. There are approximately 11,000 of those households that are unsheltered. Well, this request was paired with a statewide emergency order declaring a homeless state of emergency signed on the 10th of this month, the governor's first day in office. Well, the spending package will aim to provide immediate relief to at least 1,200 unsheltered Oregonians, prevent nearly 9,000 households from becoming homeless, expand the state shelter capacity by 600 new beds, increase sanitation services, and ensure a coordinated, equitable response to the uh, homeless emergency. Well, the package will invest in both states, uh, statewide strategies as well as focused investment to reduce unsheltered homelessness in emergency areas. The uh, governor has had preliminary conversations with legislative leaders and looks forward to working with them, this according to her a press release to finalize the package. Her initial proposal includes preventing vulnerable households from becoming homeless with $33.6 million to prevent 8,750 households from becoming homeless by funding rent assistance and other eviction prevention services, add shelter beds and housing navigators, $23.8 million to add 600 low-barrier shelter beds statewide and hire more housing navigators, to ensure unsheltered Oregonians can get connected to the shelter and services that they need. It also included rehousing unsheltered uh, households, $54.4 million, to rehouse at least 1,200 unsheltered households by funding prepaid rental assistance, block leasing at least 600 vacant homes, landlord guarantees and incentives, and other rehousing services. 
There would be support for Oregon tribes. $5 million would support emergency response directly to the non-sovereign tri- uh, tribes rather in the state of Oregon. It would ensure equitable outcomes which I'm not sure is possible, but $5 million to increase capacity for culturally responsive organizations to support equitable outcomes for the homeless state of emergency and support local sanitation services, $2 million to support local communities on sanitation services, and finally to coordinate emergency response, $1.8 million to support the emergency response being coordinated by the Office of Emergency Management and the Oregon Housing and Community Services. Well, these investments will address the issue, the emergency facing communities all across the state, the governor says. But it's only one piece of a larger strategy requiring uh, required to address this humanitarian crisis. The governor said, and I'm quoting, I am urging the legislature to take up this investment package as quickly as possible. Unsheltered Oregonians need relief now and our local communities need to support Uh, to provide that relief. This is only the first step. Together we can act with the urgency people across our state are demanding. Bold ideas, concrete solutions, disciplined follow-through. That's how we can deliver results this year and in the years that follow. Again, Governor Tina Kotek in her announcement last week. Well, Americans see their own government as uh, as the top problem facing the nation. While inflation was named as the second most concerning issue in a new Gallup poll released on Monday. Part of the reason inflation is number two is government was responsible for stoking that flame. Well, the poll found that 21 percent of U.S. adults see the government and its poor leadership as the top problem, while 15 percent see inflation as the top problem. Immigration and the economy came in third with 11 percent and four, excuse me, 10 percent respectively. Uh, When broken down by party affiliation, 24 percent of Republicans and Republican leaning independents saw the government as and poor leadership as the top problem, while 18 percent of Democrats and Democrat leaning independents agreed the government and its leadership was the top vote getter for members of both parties. Inflation and immigration tied for second among Republicans and Republican leaning independents at 18 percent, while inflation fell into the second spot. For Democrats at 11 percent, Democrats viewed race relations and the economy as equally the third most important issue facing the country at 9 percent, while Republicans 11 percent saw the economy as the third most important issue. Just 41 percent of U.S. adults approved of President Biden's job performance and just 21 percent approved of Congress's job performance. Americans gave an overwhelmingly negative view of the country's Economic conditions is just 2% described those conditions as excellent, 15% as good, an overwhelming 45% described them as poor, and 38% as fair. However, 64% of adults said it was a good time to find a quality job in the U.S. if you are committed, of course, to actually working. Well, the Memphis Police Department has relieved of duty a sixth police officer who was involved in the investigation into Tyree Nichols' death this month. An MPD spokesman confirmed the department relieved Officer Preston Hemphill of duty on Monday. In a statement, the 26-year-old officer joined the force in 2018 and allegedly used his taser on Nichols prior to the beating by five other officers. Preston, who is a Caucasian, has, no, has not yet been charged with a crime in connection with the incident, Memphis police say he is the subject of an ongoing investigation. The five other officers who are African-American are facing seven counts, second degree murder, aggravated assault, act in concert, 
two counts of aggravated kidnapping, two counts of official misconduct and official oppression. Officials released footage of the beating on Friday. It shows the five officers punching, kicking and hitting Nichols with batons as he lies prone on the 7th of January. He died of his injuries in the hospital three days later. In addition to firing the officers, police director Sarah C.J. Davis also permanently disbanded the city's so-called Scorpion unit on Saturday. The unit included the five officers and was focused on preventing and punishing street crime. Nichols' beating and death has led to outrage across the country, and rightfully so, with a Congressional Black Caucus requesting to meet directly with the president to discuss police reforms. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office started presenting evidence to a grand jury today concerning allegations that the former president, Donald Trump, bribed former adult actress Stormy Daniels to conceal their alleged encounter during his 2016 presidential campaign, according to The New York Times. The progress is suggestive of District Attorney Alvin Bragg's growing confidence that there may be enough evidence to charge the former president with a criminal indictment. Former National Enquirer publisher David Pecker, who allegedly brokered the $130,000 hush money deal, was among the witnesses who testified on Monday. The witness uh, list also included a former editor of the National Enquirer, two Trump employees and a 2016 Trump campaign staffer. Much of the case, however, hinges on the testimony of Michael Cohen, Trump's rather former personal attorney. Cohen pled guilty in 2018 to eight charges, including violating campaign finance laws. According to statements Cohen made in, uh, in his plea deal during special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into the former president's alleged collusion with Russia, the former president allegedly asked him to pay off Stormy Daniels for the principal purpose of influencing the election, end quote. Alan Weiselberg, the Trump organization's former chief financial officer, was reputedly involved in compensating uh, Cohen for the uh, illegal payment to Daniels and represents another potential start witness for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Weiselberg is currently serving time in Rikers Island for an unrelated tax fraud conviction. Bragg's predecessor, Cyrus Vance Jr., had also impaneled and presented evidence to a grand jury about the former president's Business practices focused on whether the Trump organization used fraudulent practices to secure better loans. However, Bragg lacked faith in the strength of his investigation and abandoned the grand jury in 2022, triggering the resignation of two senior lawyers, including Mark Pomerantz. Pomerantz condemned Bragg's decision as short-sighted and is set to release a book this week, which may detail sensitive information about the grand jury. Meanwhile, Uh, Former President Trump is attempting to accelerate the timeline, trying to force the hand of some of his would-be rivals for the uh, Republican nomination. President Biden is being slammed for giving his word as a Biden that Americans' future looks great. In an interesting word choice, Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat out of Massachusetts, sparked a flurry of speculation on social media over the weekend after she stopped short of backing Vice President Harris as President Biden's 2024 running mate. During an interview on Boston Public Radio, Warren was asked if Harris should be Biden's running mate. She said everything but yes, or I think so, or anything approximating an actual answer. In rare bipartisanship, Governor, Senator, I should say GOP Senator Rubio and Democrat Senator Warner say they lack access to the president's um, and former President Trump's seized documents, and that cannot stand. The taxman cometh, 
The IRS crash grab with fantasy sports is about to hit Americans like a truck, according to tax experts. And Mark Levin is calling on GOP governors to protect children's education, saying teach history, not Marxist propaganda. Steve Hilton, another commentator, suggests that it's time to demand accountability over U.S. funding of virus research in Wuhan. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a theft buster, Lowe's has apparently successfully tested a system to solve organized retail crime. That could certainly be useful right about now. A gentle giant, an enormous Arizona house cat is almost three and a half feet long. What a terrifying thing to even consider, let alone run into. Ronna McDaniel says this is my last term as chair. Well, the Republican National Committee chair, Ronna McDaniel, says that after winning an unprecedented uh, in modern times, fourth term as chair of the GOP, there won't be a fifth term in her future. This is my last term as chair. I'm saying it on Fox News. It's done. McDaniel declared on Friday. Minutes earlier, McDaniel won the support of 111 committee members who cast ballots in a secret ballot vote for chair, more than the majority of the 168 members needed to secure the reelection. Many in the party cited last November's midterms as a reason to elect fresh blood as McDaniel oversaw the RNC through the last three elections. McDaniel, in brief remarks, told RNC committee members that she heard the concerns from those who voiced criticism in the wake of the November elections, while also projecting unity within the party. Colorado Baker Jack Phillips lost his appeal in court again. This is against a couple suing him for refusing to make a gender transition cake. The Colorado baker who won a partial U.S. Supreme Court victory after refusing to make a same-sex wedding cake because of his Christian faith lost an appeal on Thursday in his latest legal fight involving his rejection of a request for a birthday cake celebrating a gender transition. The Colorado Court of Appeals ruled that that cake, uh, Autumn's um, Scardina, requested from Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop, which was to be pink with blue frosting, is not a form of speech. It also found that the state uh, state law that makes it illegal to refuse to provide services to people based on protected characteristics like race, religion, and sexual orientation does not violate business owners' right to practice or express their religion. Alliance Defending Freedom said, We live in a country where freedom of speech and religious freedom are protected. Jack's, Jack Phillips just like every creative professional, has the right to decline to use his artistic abilities to express messages or celebrate events he disagrees with. For some, it will never be enough to politely agree to disagree about an important issue like the meaning of marriage or whether to celebrate a gender transition. Representative Ilhan Omar of uh, on Republicans keeping her accountable for her history of anti-Semitic comments The representative claimed during an interview broadcast on Sunday that she didn't know that she was trafficking in anti-Semitism by making allegations, um, alleged anti-Semitic remarks. Omar's comments on CNN's State of the Union comes as she faces the prospect of being removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee over her previous statements and hostility toward Israel. Omar claimed that Republicans wanting to hold her accountable for her previous comments was politically motivated. Steve Guest points out that Democrat Representative Omar claims on CNN that she was not aware that the word uh, hypnotized was a trope and wasn't aware of the fact that there are tropes about Jews and money. End quote. Give me a break, he went on to say. 
And the Hill writes, and so these people are okay with Islamophobia. They're okay with trafficking in their own ways of anti-Semitism. They're not okay with having a Muslim have a voice on that committee, quoting Omar. Well, the Utah Senate passed a bill banning gender-affirming care for minors. Utah is likely to become the first state to ban gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors this year. The Utah Senate approved a bill Friday that would bar minors from receiving gender-affirming surgeries and placed... Uh, place an indefinite moratorium on their access to puberty blockers and hormone therapy. The bill now heads to the desk of Governor Spencer Cox, who became the second Republican governor last year to veto a bill that bars transgender students from playing girls sports. If approved by the governor, and that's an if, the bill will immediately go into effect. However, it would not stop teens already on puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones from continuing their current procedures. A Palestinian terrorist opened fire outside an Israeli synagogue on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. A Palestinian gunman opened fire outside an East Jerusalem synagogue Friday night, killing seven people, including a 70-year-old woman, and wounding three others before he was shot and killed by police. It was the deadliest attack on Israelis in years and raised the likelihood of more bloodshed. The attack, which occurred as residents were observing the Jewish Sabbath, came a day after an Israeli military raid killed nine Palestinians in the West Bank. U.S. Ambassador to Israel Tom Nides, he says horrific act of violence at the Jerusalem synagogue on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. I am shocked and disgusted at the heinous terrorist attack on innocent people, including children, praying for all of the victims and their loved ones. Ukrainian officials have renewed calls for the United States and Germany to supply them with fighter jets in their ongoing fight with Russia after two Western allies changed their decision on supplying tanks. They immediately asked for F-16 jets after securing the American tanks and the Germans eased up on their objection. Well, the U.S. and uh, Germany uh, previously said that they would not send uh, the armored fighting vehicles, but reversed the decision after further negotiations, ultimately agreeing to send more than 30 Abrams N1 tanks and 14 Leopard 2 tanks, respectively. Ukrainian officials are now engaged in fast-track talks for long-range missiles and military aircraft, a top Ukrainian presidential aide said on Saturday. Ukraine said on uh, Friday it would take its pilots about half a year to train for combat in Western fighter jets such as US F-16s. The president has already said, for example, that it will take months, if not years, for the tanks to arrive. Urban cities are on the edge in the wake of the Tyree Nichols video release. Massive protests took place across the country Friday night following the release of the Nichols body cam footage. Since Nichols' death, the backlash has been relatively swift. The five Memphis officers involved in the beating, who are also black, were fired and charged with murder and kidnapping in Nichols' death. The unit they were a part of was disbanded and state lawmakers representing the Memphis area began planning police reform bills. And now a sixth uh, officer has been uh, detained. Sebastian Gorka points out that there's a reason thug like thugs like this are allowed to be police officers because the good LEOs aren't uh, allowed to do their job and left. Julia Rosa said looters in the far eastern parts of the city took advantage of police monitoring BLM protesters, stopping uh, traffic on the Memphis and Arkansas Bridge for hours to loot multiple stores and brazen smash and grab uh, crimes. Stores hit included an athletic store, a clothing store and a GameStop. Smash and grabs have been plaguing the city for months.
The EU and its allies are discussing an oil price cap for Russia. Politico reports uh, that the EU and its rich country allies are taking aim against Russia's ability to earn money. We'll tell you more about that later in the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, at the age of 10, my next guest, Peter Mutabazi, ran away from home in rural Uganda to escape his abusive father. For five years, he survived on the streets of Kampala, a city of 1.5 million, until one man saw potential in him. This one person not only supported him through school, but altered his life in every possible way. Well, he has since served as a relief coordinator during the Rwandan genocide, worked for the International Committee for the Red Cross during the Sudan conflict, graduated from three universities, worked for an international children's relief agency, became a U.S. citizen, fostered countless children, and became a single adoptive parent. He speaks seven languages. He's traveled to more than 100 countries as a U.S. uh, international advocate for children. Wow. Well, in his book, Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth, Mr. Mutabazi, he shares his journey from hopelessness to finding faith and coming full circle to rescue other vulnerable children. It is an inspiring story, but one that is not just intended to inspire, but to convey a message that may change your life as well. Again, my guest, Peter Mutabazi, he is the author of this um, inspiring book, Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad, Found Acceptance and True Worth. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me here. It's really a joy to be with you. This is such an amazing story. It's heartbreaking when we read about your early days and why you ran away from home. But it also reminds us that every life has value. Share a little bit of your background for our listeners who haven't had the benefit yet of reading your book, Now I Am Known. Yes. Well, I grew up in a, in a, in a small village at the border of Uganda and Rwanda. You know, where life was miserable in every way, shape, form you could imagine. And it wasn't just our family, it was everyone. You know, poverty is all we knew. You know, most people didn't have enough to, to eat for a day. Most people didn't have any dreams or any inspiration for life. And that was me as well. But actually, I did not have a name until when I was two years old. Because for every 100 children were born in my village, 60 would die before the age of two. So my mom waited until when I was two. She's like... He survived, so I'm going to call him the gift given to us by God. So that's kind of where I come from, you know, where I had to grow up so quickly. By the age of four, I began to realize that our family was different. We hardly had any any food to eat. There was no glimpse of hope in any shape or form. But also, I realized that my dad was different from other dads. He was mean and abusive to everyone at home, including my mother. And so for me, the glimpse of people were nowhere. And uh, I had to go fetch water three miles away twice a day. I could eat one meal every other day. We never had any choice. I never had a pair of shoes until when I was 16 years old. So for me, there wasn't anything that would give me a zeal to, to dream for tomorrow uh, because of poverty on one side, but also a mean dad on the other end. Uh, and that truly was my life, you know, every day until at the age of 10 when I could not take it anymore. When you write about your father abusing you, we're talking about physical, verbal, uh, in every way that a, a child can be abused. You were told by your father that you were worthless, that a dog had more value than you did because at least a dog had purpose. This was the message that you heard from your father 
up until you ran away from home at age 10. And you mentioned right. that this was uncommon um, among uh, sons and, and fathers in your village. What role did your mom play in all of this? And were there other siblings? Yes, I'm the oldest of five. You know, and of course, you know, we had a mom who, who cared for us, who advocated for us. But I think I I really dealt with much guilt because I saw my mom get beatings because she was advocating for us to have food. Or she would ask my father, like, hey, would you help them go to school? But she would be the one who gets the abuse. So on one side, yes, I had a mother that loved me and that cared for me. But on the other hand, I could not protect her because of the abuse I had to watch happen. Yes, I come from a culture where men come first, you know, that women second class and children third class. So it almost like he had a right to do whatever he wanted and no one could stop him. You know, so I think as a 10 year old, I just didn't know what to do. And I thought he would take my life before I run away. Now, at 10 years old, kids often think about running away. You actually did it. Did you have a plan or did you just need to get out of the situation you were in and just uh, take it a day, a moment at a time? You know, well, yes, you know, I think, you know, kids from hard places, we learn how to grow really quickly. I think at five, I was thinking more like a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, by 10, I was thinking more like a 25-year-old. You know, he sent me to go buy cigarettes. So it had rained and it was at three in the morning. So, you know, they were all damaged. So I thought, if I go back home, he's going to kill me. So I thought, you know, rather than let him kill me, I'd rather die in the hands of a stranger. So for me, running away, going to the bus station and asking which bus went the farthest, it's not like I was looking for a better life. It was, how far can I run? If I die, he will never get to bury my own body. That was my zeal of wanting to run away uh, that night. So your anticipation wasn't a better life of survival. It was simply escaping the hell that you had been in for the first 10 years of your life. Absolutely. It was more like I'd rather die, but I'd rather die in the hands of someone else, not my father, mm-hmm. you know? So at a 10-year-old, I think that was my whole concept of I'd rather die, you know, that he would never even have a, a joy of burying my own body. You know, so that's why I asked the lady at the bus station, of all these buses, which goes the farthest, and I got on the one that took me up to Kampala. You know, I had never been 20 miles away from my village, and I went 500 kilometers away, and I ended up in Kampala. Mm. You write about taking the first step to fulfilling your potential after the trauma and abuse that you had endured. At 10 years old, what did you think about your potential, if there was any, and how did you even come to the conclusion that perhaps there is some value to this life that I've been told has no value? Well, I didn't have that. You know, I had lived in the streets for about five years. Until a stranger began to feed me, you know. He would feed me every other week and he would come and, you know, he's the only person who called me by my name because no one ever really saw me as a human being. Most people saw us, like they treated us like stray animals. So I was, in, I was a garbage boy. I was a dirty little thief. That's how people viewed me. But this person did. He always fed me. He always called me by my name. And one day he said, hey, Peter, if you have an opportunity to go to school, would you love to go to school? I think for me, that's when I began to dream that if this stranger sees the best in me, if this stranger thinks I have a potential, then maybe I do. So when he suggested taking me to school, well, with, with the promise that there was food there. <laughs> so for me, the, the whole attraction was, if food is there, I'm going to be okay. And so I went to the boarding school, and I began to dream, because I had kind words from this stranger and from my teachers. But they began to believe in me, and they're like, wait a minute, if they believe in me, maybe there's something about me 
I can work hard to prove to them that actually, you know, I was worth of saving or I was worth of, you know, letting be at school. And that's really what helped me to begin to excel because of what they believed in me, you know? So they said, I'm, you know, you're Peter, you're kind, you're brave, you're, you're chosen. So for, for me to steal from others didn't feel like I should so because I had some people who believed in me, you know, the teachers, you know, I would fail, get F, F, but every time I got a D, a teacher would say, Peter, you are smart. And I began to believe those words mm. and really began to help me heal the wound that I'd had all my life that I would never mount anything. Now these teachers were saying, no, you're special. You are belong. You are part of us and you matter. That began to really help me believe in myself. You began to see yourself through a different lens um, than you had uh, previously. Looking back, did this help you understand how God and others see you? Was there a broader interpretation to this encouragement that you were now receiving? Yes, I think he told me the life of Joseph. You know, he said, you remember Joseph? He told me the story of how his brothers found him. And then they were scared that he's going to kill them on how he responded. He said, for what you meant for evil, God has used it to save lives. And for me, that helped me to know like, oh, no matter where I've come from, I, I can actually use it for good to save myself and maybe one day to save others. And that's really what helped me in some way really overcome the trauma, overcome the the, the, the rage and the abuse that I had had from my, from my father. But too, that I began to do well, then in some way I began to think, wait a minute, if I really take the anger and what my father told me, then I'm letting him ruin my future. So I was like, you know what? No, you know, I'm going to take what I have now. I'm going to believe in what I have now. And I'm not going to let my the past in some way determine what my future was going to be. And that really helped me to excel because I wasn't bringing my baggage. I wasn't looking back and, mm-hmm. you know, what he had said in some way, like feel like, oh, people said I'm garbage. Maybe I'm garbage. No, I think I... I didn't want my father to win or ruin my future. And that helped me to really excel. And how they saw the best in me, you know, if a stranger can love me unconditionally, there's something about me that he loves. And that really helped me to know that God loves me no matter who I was. We're talking with Peter Mutabazi. He is the author of Now I'm Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad found acceptance and true worth. The book is published by Baker. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Peter Mutabazi. He is the author of Now I'm Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad, Found Acceptance, and True Worth. The story is about so much more than that, and it's uh, definitely a good inspirational read, but it may challenge you as well in uh, thinking how you look to those who uh, seem desperate uh, and need our help. Now, were there times uh, when you were living in survival mode that you were tempted to give up? Oh, yes. I think, you know, you know, every time I, 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 I failed or I was scared of what I didn't know what the future or what I was doing. Yeah, I, I felt like I'm, I'm going to give up. You know, this is not for me. But I had people alongside who would always remind me, you've walked a long way. You can do it. And that really helped me to stay put and stay on the course in some way because I had farmers and friends. They were willing to, to come alongside my, my journey. Mm. What do you say to those who are at this moment in survival mode? What advice do you have for them? Well, I would say, you know, <laughs> uh, 
the survival mode is, is sometimes it hinders to see what the potential we have or what 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 the future has for us. But if we can accept where we are, if we can embrace it, but then get to you to say, Lord, you have me here, but how can I use it to help others and to help myself? I think we get to see the value even when it doesn't look okay. You know, that we begin to see the little glimpse in hope in how he's allowed us to go through this, that he can really help us to overcome that. You know, I, I love to look back to know that my father didn't kill me. I survived on the streets. Well, that's God's grace that really helped me that he wanted me to survive and live on. So even for you who's listening, you might say, the world is bleak. I'm going through a difficult time. But maybe you could go back a little farther in your life and say, how did he carry you through before? How did he help you to get to where you are rather than being a fog of what today to look back and say, he's walked with you. He's been before you and he will help you even in this situation to heal you, to make you overcome and to guide you to the, to the best place that he wants you to be. You were identified by a stranger who took, um, had compassion for you and he arranged for you to attend a boarding school. You began to receive an education during this season. Did you have a vision of what your life might be like or a desire to reach back and help others who had been in similar situations in need of a parent, a foster parent, um, how did you see yourself through this process where you're being educated and um, perhaps for the first time in your young life began to imagine that you had a future and a hope? Well, so I'm the oldest of five. Mm-hmm. So my my siblings had remained at home and were still going through the same abuse I had gone through. So as I began to go, you know, grade 11, I began to think, wait a minute, I can truly do the best I can to rescue my brothers and sisters. I knew I could not take them away, but if I can be example for them and, and help them, uh, you know, really have education that I would have rescued them from the abuse and for the future of what was, that was going to be for them. So from, a, from get-go, I think I had a desire to help my own siblings. And that helped me because I helped them. They've all gone to university and, and have good jobs, you know, but also they were able to see the example. I think in their mind, they were more like, if Peter can do it, we can do it as well. But that really helped them to excel as well. So that kindness of a stranger on how he really helped me that I knew I can do that for my siblings. Mm-hmm. And so that was easy for me to do for others as well. My nieces and, and, and nephews, you know, my cousins, you know, that that became my mission to truly help others because I saw how the kindness of one human being had changed my own life. You um, spent some time in Rwanda. You saw the devastation uh, from the uh, genocide that had taken uh, place there. How did that uh, affect you? And did that uh, impact how you were able to get rid of the hate for your father and what had happened um, as a result of his hatred toward you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I went to Rwanda, I was rescuing children. And on, on a daily basis, I would see more than 2,000 dead bodies. And my first day to see that, I thought, I'm going to die. And I could not imagine how could people kill their fellow humans that way. But as I pointed a finger, I began to look at myself because I had wanted to harm my dad as well. Like I hated my dad so, so much. But that's why I had not become a believer because I wanted to go back home and break his leg and, you know, do some physical harm. But I realized that 
before I could point a finger to people who were doing what, what they were doing one that I was capable of taking someone else's life, especially my dad. And that's when I, you know, I went to the driver and said, you know what, I want, I know we're gonna die, but please, please, please pray for me so I can go to heaven. And and he looked at me and said, well, you go to church, you work for Compassion International, you're a believer. And I said, no, I look like one, mm-hmm. I act like one, but I don't know him as my Lord and Savior. And that's how I. I really became a believer and I forgive my dad. Not that I was looking for him to come back and say, Peter, sorry, but that was my job to forgive him. The rest that I knew God would take care of it. And I felt like I lost a hundred pounds for letting that go because I realized just the anger I had had towards my dad wasn't good in any shape form. And that helped me to truly see God's grace and mercy and forgiveness uh, that we all need forgiveness, uh, especially me. Well, I love the description that you looked like a believer, but you actually were not one. It wasn't enough to just go through the steps of serving others and extending kindness and compassion. You didn't know Jesus personally, and that made all the difference in terms of how you uh, dealt with your past and how you specifically dealt with the mistreatment that you had endured at the hands of your father. Yes, absolutely. It helped me see my own sin, and that really helped me to know to know, to get to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. You had, as you mentioned a few moments ago, imagined that you could help your siblings, that you could help your extended family, but you hadn't yet seen yourself as a world changer. How did that transition from someone who was needy to helping family members to reaching out and helping perfect strangers in various countries around the world? Well, I think people, you know, I would, I would help people, but they would go back and tell the story like, hey, we need this guy and, he, you know, we need to give him a scholarship to go study. Things I didn't really see. For me, I was doing what I love to do, but I didn't realize that I was touching lives. And that's how he took it serious. Like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe God rescuing me, God protecting me and in the hands of this stranger to change my life, that he had a purpose for me to do more for others. So uh, as soon as I finished you know, university, I really wanted to work for charities that were really helping the most vulnerable. So I worked for Compassion International, and that's why I worked in, you know, for Red Cross and, and for World Vision as well, because I, I knew in that, in that way I could use my own journey to really share and tell how kindness of one stranger can change an entire family. Well, and you certainly have done that in big ways, and I'm sure that 10-year-old boy could not have imagined what you ended up doing in these international relief organizations, reaching out to hundreds, if not thousands of children in desperate need of help. That is all part of your professional world, but you decided to make it a bit more personal as well. You have uh, served as a foster parent and an adopted parent. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yes. Yeah, so when I came to the United States, I came as a student. But my first day in the United States, I saw how much food was thrown away. And I think I really struggled with my faith, seeing how much food was thrown. I said, God, do you, do you love us the same way that others can mm-hmm. die for the lack of beans and others can just throw away food like it's nothing? You know, and as I, I looked through that, I really also began to really realize that I was I'd been given so much. You know, Luke 12, 48, it said, too much is given, much is required. But I knew I'd been rescued. I'd been given a home. I'd been given education. I've traveled over the world. And I really, this was a time for me to say, you know what? I'm going to help. So I had traveled all over the world, but I had never seen a black person who was adapting or who was 
uh, adapting in any place like Uganda, Ethiopia, or China. They were all white people or they were married. And I was single, so I thought, maybe I don't qualify. So in some way, when we don't see representation, we, we, we assume or we believe the lie. So for me, I got to know about false care system, and I thought there's no way they can allow me to be a foster parent, but at least I can go in and mentor. So I walked in and I asked the social worker, hey, is there a way I could mentor teenagers? And you know, she looked at me and she said, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? I was like, I don't think I qualify. I'm single. She said, no, you can't be. I mean, that day I signed up and I started to be licensed the next day, you know, and four months later I had my first placement <laughs> and it was the greatest decision I can say because it's really helped me to, to give back. You know, I went through the worst traumas you could go, you could imagine. And our kids in the post care have gone through the same. And I knew, I knew I can be of help. I knew, I understand, I understood their world. I understood where they came from, that I knew I could impact their lives. And so since then, I've had 27, 28. I've adopted one, and I'm in the process of adopting the other three uh, that are with me. So it's truly been a joy, an amazing journey for sure. Oh, absolutely. What's one thing you'd like your readers to know uh, after reading this book about your journey, God's faithfulness, and the value and purpose of a life that might have been simply discarded? Yes, so I wrote this book for friends and for those who go through difficult times, you know, and for my kids as well, that to use our past as a way to do better for ourselves. Like our past, yes, we can't change and we, we, we write our past, but we can use it to truly help us go as a foundation to see how far we can go. And that's what I did. I wanted my kids, my kids know me as Papa and they think I'm the coolest dad, but I wanted <laughs> them to see, I wanted them to see like, yeah, the coolest dad you think actually he had to jump a lot of hooks and jumps uh, to get where he is. But if he can pass, if he can, if he can use his past to do good, you can do as well. And I think I wanted the readers to feel the same. You know, you've gone through the bad marriage to not let that ruin for the rest of your life. You know, you've had a bad boss to say, no, that should not ruin for the rest of your job or, you know, difficult in, in, in anything that we want to do, to, to see that as a positive way in how God will use us for any past, good or bad, to truly bless us so we can bless others. And that's what I'm doing, you know. We're using my past to change the lives of those around me. You know, the bio parents who think sometimes that they're, they're losing their children. And how can I come alongside and say, hey, I'm going to have your baby, but I'm going to watch you walk the journey so you can have them back. That I'm resource to them. Not be a judge or throw stone at them, but to see them as any of us can be a bad parent. Any of us can fail, but I want them to have their kids back. And if I can do that for them, I've given the greatest thing to have them their kids back. Uh, because I noticed that my mother, you know, anyone who passes on the street will say, wow, mother would let their kids be in the streets. But they didn't know what my mother went through. And I want to do the same for our bio parents, for our foster kids. Yes, they've messed up, but we can come alongside and encourage them and be a resource so they can have their kids back. And those who have nowhere to go, I'd love to be their dad, you know, uh, and help and inspire others to truly use what we've been given to help those in need. Well, the book is uh, wonderfully written, uh, wonderfully inspiring and challenging, and I thank you so much uh, for the book and for your taking time to join us here today. Well, thank you for letting us be seen. 
had unknown. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, the book is titled Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. Peter Mudabazi. And you can find the book at nowiamknown.com or through the usual outlets. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to The Georgine Rice Show. Wycliffe Associates is a name that might be familiar to many of you, but you may not know the full extent of the work they do in supporting Bible translators. Well, Wycliffe Associates is an international organization. They empower uh, Bible translators who translate the Bible into the mother tongues of uh, people groups around the globe. And they partner with local churches in the advancement of Bible translation and supplying essential aid to Ukrainian national Bible translators and others. Now, we're going to talk a bit about their work in general, but the work they're doing now in Ukraine is uh, the subject of our uh, conversation and their efforts to uh, support those who are engaged in Bible translation in this war-torn area. Joining us to do just that is Steve Martin. He is Vice President of Field Development with Wheelcliffe Associates, Bible Translators, and we're delighted to have you with us and to uh, familiarize our listeners with what uh, Wycliffe does as well as what you're doing now in Ukraine. Welcome. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's begin by talking about Bible translation. I had a conversation with someone at an event just a few days ago, and we were uh, fascinated at the thought that the scriptures are being translated at a rate that was unthinkable just a short time ago. Talk a little bit about the translation work and how that uh, that uh, work of the Great Commission is is moving forward. Well, Georgine, we at Wycliffe Associates, we see Bible translation as a critical aspect of the Great Commission that we read there in Matthew 28. And God has just opened doors for His Word to accelerate in uh, new passages that we didn't dream about decades ago. And so in the mid-teens, uh, 2015, 2016, in that area, we started seeing where there was maybe a better route that we could start giving our attention to, and that was allowing the people who knew the language to actually be the translators as well. And we would come in alongside them, allowing the local church, what we call church-owned Bible translation, to be the ones who owned, managed, and made all the decisions in regard to the translation project itself. What that ended up resulting in was a acceleration that we didn't imagine, but now what maybe would have taken anywhere from 20 to 25 years uh, can be done in two or three years or less. It's absolutely amazing to consider the, the rate of increase that we've experienced in a short period of time. What role does technology play in making that possible? a critical role. Uh, We obviously had to put a lot of effort into our technology, and it continues to grow. We provide the tools to train the technology to our partners around the globe that are doing Bible translation, and this is technology that is all built into laptops, and so they have basically incredible resources that most pastors, ministers would envy uh, on their digital uh, machines and are able to use that for the translation process, both in written and oral. 
How how do we stand generally in terms of seeing the scriptures translated into the mother uh, language of people groups around the globe? How close are we to fulfilling the Great Commission, at least in terms of having the Bible available in the, the languages of the people uh, who otherwise would not uh, have op- opportunity to understand the scriptures? Uh, that's a great question. And we generally sit around round tables here at Wickham Associates asking ourselves that same thing. <laughs> and the reason I say it that way is every time we think we know, okay, this is how many languages are in the world, we uncover languages that we didn't know existed. Or countries will raise their number of, oh, we don't have 700 languages, we have 2,000 languages in our country. So that number kind of eludes us a bit, but what we do know is that we are making progress with penetrating the darkest most difficult areas of the world to make sure that all people have God's word. And the gateway languages, what we call gateway languages, or the languages of commerce, uh, have God's word. And so the teams that are put together have the resources that they understand to be able to be doing the translation into their heart language. Now, how does this work? It it used to be, at least uh, as I understood it, that someone who was translating the scriptures would move to an area where a particular language was used. They would labor over the process of learning the language and then uh, learning to write the language in order to translate the scriptures. Is that essentially the same way that it's done today, where people are actually living in the area where the scriptures are being translated? Or does technology and travel and all of that make it um, simpler and people can do it from locations anywhere in the world? Yes, another great question. So the way I would answer that is some of that still happens in the way that you described it. However, in almost all methodologies, the opportunity to not have to be in the community on a full-time basis exists. And so for the way that uh, works for Wycliffe Associates, uh, we have in our mass methodology, mobilized assistance supporting translation, Uh, which comes under our church-owned Bible translation uh, umbrella, Uh, we go in and we'll do training workshops with the local people. And, of course, the pastors, the synods, the bishops, you know, they're the ones who pick who their translators are going to be. And often they're more highly educated than many of us. (laughs) And so they'll bring them together and they'll form their translation team. And then we will walk them through uh, the Uh, process of doing translation, how to do the drafting, how to do the checking, uh, how to do that with a community check. And they take it from there to expand it uh, to other uh, regions or other language groups around them. And so that is what accelerates the translation because they already know the language, Mm -hmm. they know the culture, they know what the words mean and how to apply them. Whereas if we went in, sometimes our best guess is not close. I can't even imagine the challenge of trying to learn and uh, not just learn, but understand a language and then translate God's word into that language. Is there much pushback? Do you find that um, translators are generally welcome or are there instances in which uh, the work they do is opposed either by locals or by government officials? Well, I'm taking that question as relating to the national translators, and depending on the country, 
is what type of reception they receive. We have obviously easy countries that we could go into. They have no uh, issues with Bible translation. They see that as a great literacy uh, advancement for their country and their people. They encourage it and applaud it and give us all the go-aheads. There are other countries which we call creative access or difficult countries to get into. And those people are more required to be able to do their translation without any uh, being noticed Mm -hmm. or others being aware of what they're doing. Sometimes what we have to do there is actually bring them out of their countries into a neutral country. And we have what we call safe havens. And they're able to do the workshop at this neutral place, put their information up in a cloud, get back to their country, and then they get back into their homes. They can draw it back down and continue working. But we can't get into the country. Or if we did go into the country, we would jeopardize them by their association with us. So this is very careful uh, work that you are doing. One of the things that Wycliffe Associates is focusing on right now is supporting Bible translators and their families as well as other Christians in Ukraine. Now, it might surprise some of our listeners to know that there are Bible translators in Ukraine. It's sort of the Bible belt of that region. Explain what Bible translators in the Ukraine region are doing, and then we can talk a bit about the challenge they currently face. Yeah, so they're involved in um, language groups uh, that don't have Scripture. Uh, Some of those may have a New Testament. They don't have an Old Testament Some may have portions of the scripture, and then there's the people groups that don't have any scripture at all. And what we currently know is that number is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 45 to 50 or so in Ukraine that don't have any scripture. And our teams are most heavily involved with the Roma languages, kind of the gypsy type languages that are there. And we have opportunities uh, right now with our regional director who lives in Kiev uh, to reach out to eight other uh, language groups. And I think he plans on doing that in November. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation and talk about what's happening in Ukraine and how the war with Russia is uh, impacting Bible translation, uh, translators, their families and the uh, Christian community as well. Once again, we're talking with Steve Martin. He's vice president of field development with Wycliffe Associates. We're talking about uh, Bible translators and the, those they partner with and in particular in Ukraine. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm going to continue a conversation with Steve Martin. He is vice president of field development with Wycliffe Associates Bible Translation. They're partners with uh, churches ar- all around the world. We're going to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Oftentimes when we think about Bible translation, we think about remote places. We don't necessarily consider that there's work being done in Ukraine and how the war is impacting those who are involved in Bible translation in that area. Can you talk with us about the emergency 911 fund and uh, how Bible translators in Ukraine are um, suffering as a consequence of the conflict that's going on there? Uh, certainly can, Georgine. When this all happened back in February, actually February 24th, uh, many of us were gathered together in another country outside of Ukraine, and our team was with us. Our Ukraine team was with us. So it's kind of interesting as 
things started happening and cell phones started buzzing, uh, ringing, uh, alarms started going off, and all of our attention went to what had just happened in their country. We immediately began praying, stopped our meeting, began praying, just seeking God's face uh, for his intervention at that time. And then, of course, by the end of the evening, the devastation, the destruction, the death report, all that stuff started coming in uh, to us and our Ukraine team. So it didn't require any additional prayer for us to know what to do. Mm. It's one of those things where you know what God wants you to do um, just in your spirit. So we immediately began arranging how do we help our people, what turned out for us was we had families that were separated. They were maybe some of the family was in a different country, some of the families in a different part of the country. And uh, we had one uh, set of parents and their daughter were separated. The daughter was at the home, the parents were actually with us. And eventually uh, they were, we were trying to get the daughter out and every road was closed. Every bridge was bombed. It was just, she always ended up getting turned back. Eventually uh, they were able to be reunited in another country and we were providing funding uh, for them to be able to, to live because they had lost everything uh, in the process of the daughter uh, escaping right after she got away, uh, a bomb hit their home and destroyed it. So we've been able to go in, provide those needs, uh, just basic humanitarian needs uh, for our our staff and for translation team members. And we don't really limit that to only those who work with us and are doing translation. But we let them look at the landscape around them because they have some eyes that they can see where uh, these people really need help. And what we found at Wycliffe Associates is that our humanitarian aid has opened many people's hearts to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many have come to know him simply because we provided a package of food or we met a need in their family's life or there was a medical issue here as a result of something awful that had happened. So that's one of the ways or some of the ways that we have been able to assist at Ukraine. This particular family with the daughter where they were separated, they've actually gone back in to mm -hmm. their home city of Kiev and are actively back at work in Bible translation. That's just just amazing. The emergency nine one one fund, is that something that you have had for a, a long period of time and had to activate in order to supply the practical um, needs that of those who are translating in, in war torn or other troubled areas? I don't know the origin of our emergency 9-11, but I do know it's been with us for more than two decades because it's always been here since I've been with Wycliffe Associates. So that's a couple of decades. And it is something that our donors are quick to respond to when they see a crisis. Many of our donors will know that they're going to be sending out an emergency grant, and so maybe they send their money in early. But generally, once we send out something to say, you know, we, we need some funds to be able to help, this is something that gets an immediate reply from our donors, and they're very generous. And we just turn that right back around 
and get it to the people who actually need it. I know for many people who have been observing since February, the events in Ukraine have been very concerned about what they can do and practical ways to help. And this certainly is a means to do that. Is there a way for listeners here today to participate in this effort through the emergency 9-11 fund? Yeah, the simplest way would just be to go to our website, www.wickliffassociates.org. And there'll be projects on one of those um, horizontal lines and just flip through that a couple times and you'll see the opportunity to get to the 9-11 emergency fund. Again, that's uh, www.wickliffassociates.org. And I'll put a link on the uh, Facebook page as well as the kpdq.com web page as well. So you can click on that and Uh, give if uh, your heart is so moved. Now, Wycliffe Associates is not a political organization. The Body of Christ is not a political movement. Um, Are there translation um, efforts uh, similar to what's happening in Ukraine and elsewhere around the world in Russia? We do have uh, projects ongoing in Russia, and we also have one that just was completed uh, recently, uh, as in, I think, a couple months ago. And we have a team there as well. Uh, Russia is um, a more challenging country for us to be in, but we have people on the ground in Russia, yes. Well, we certainly can be in prayer for all those who are in the uh, the challenging work of Bible translation, um, bringing the, um, the Great Commission into brighter relief as we consider that we are moving closer to the day in which uh, the Bible will be available in, in every mother tongue uh, around the globe. Um, how can we pray for uh, Bible translators in Ukraine and certainly elsewhere around the world who are uh, helping to fulfill that Great Commission by their careful and meticulous work of translating God's word into languages uh, that have uh, up to this point not have access to the Bible? Well, Georgine, uh, I appreciate you asking that question because prayer, as we've many times heard within the church, it is the work. And those who pray are the ones who pave the way for anything that Wycliffe Associates accomplishes. Our translation uh, teams are still facing the fact that, you know, their homes are destroyed. They're they're living in apartments or maybe they're uh, having to uh, live with other people because their home was is gone. They're facing the challenges of, you know, just the mental jarring that goes on daily, the state of crisis that they're in. Uh, There still is a shortage of food, water. There's the inability to move around without caution and fear. Um, Blockades that still continue to happen and the challenges that go with that. These things all work against them and the efforts to move forward with Bible translation, um, but they don't let those things stop them. So while these things have caused them to stumble, they have not fallen. And these are areas that we can continue to pray that God would just give them strength. Well, that's what they ask for. Their desire is that they not get distracted from Bible translation. And our desire is that we can give them everything they need so that they can continue with that passion in their heart to have God's word in their heart language and for all the people that speak that 
along with them. Absolutely. Well, there are a couple of ways that we've just <laughs> discussed that we can come alongside and support the work. One would certainly be to fervently pray for, uh, pray for those who are engaged in the work and especially those who are in challenging circumstances. We can also consider giving to the the uh, emergency 9-11 fund. You can go to WycliffeAssociates.org. And again, we'll put that uh, address on the uh, web page so that you can click on that and give generously as those particularly in Ukraine are currently struggling under the uh, the weight of the violence that's going on in uh, in that country as they continue in their efforts to translate God's word. Well, I am so grateful for the work that you do and the uh, the role that you are playing in helping to reach the goal that we all just dream of, and that is to have mm-hmm. uh, the Bible translated and for men and women in every country, every tribe, every uh, native tongue can read God's word and uh, be introduced to his son. So thank you for your faithful efforts and thank you for taking time to talk with us here today. Well, thank you, Georgine, for inviting us. It's been a pleasure to be your guest and may your voice continue to sound forth for the kingdom of God. Thank you so much. Again, Steve Martin is Vice President of Field Development with Wycliffe Associates, Bible Translation Partners. And that uh, web address, if you'd like to help in their efforts to support Bible translators, particularly in Ukraine, as well as uh, members of the the church there, it's WycliffeAssociates.org. And that's W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E Associates.org. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the EU and its allies are discussing an oil price cap for Russia. Politico reported that the EU and its uh, rich country allies are taking aim against the, uh, again at Russia's ability to earn money from its vast oil reserves by moving to limit the price of Moscow's refined oil products. The bloc is proposing that G7 allies cap the price of Russian diesel at $100 a barrel and set a separate cap at $45 for other cheaper oil products. The EU wants to bring in the uh, the measure on February 5th, the same date as its embargo on buying Russian oil products goes into effect. Bloomberg weighs in, saying that companies would only be um, be able to access key EU services, such as shipping and insurance, if they comply with the cap and purchase the affected products below the threshold. The Twitter files reveal how the media and lawmakers were influenced by fake Russian disinformation. The latest edition of the Twitter files from investigative journalist Matt Tybee revealed that media outlets, academics and policymakers who cited an initiative meant to attract supposed Russian disinformation fell for a not so elaborate scam. Tybee did a deep dive into their sources, Hamilton 68, a so-called dashboard that purportedly monitored Russian bot activity. Tybee wrote Hamilton 68 was the source of hundreds, if not thousands, of mainstream print and TV news stories in the Trump years. But behind the scenes, Twitter executives trashed Hamilton 68 and deliberately, or rather deliberated whether they should publicly rebuke uh, the system. Tybee goes on to say, in layman's terms, the Hamilton 68 barely had any Russians. In fact, apart from a few RT accounts, it mostly full of ordinary Americans, Canadians and British. Well, Democrats want to raise federal workers pay and a move to further insulate federal workers from negative economic consequences of the budget busting policies of one political party and the inflationary spending spree. House Democrats propose, wait for it, spending even more of American taxpayer dollars to give federal employees an 8.7 percent pay raise. 
dubbed the Federal Adjustment of Income Rates Act, or FAIR Act. House Democrats assert that this wage increase for federal workers is needed to help them recover from both the COVID pandemic and the four traumatic years working under the Trump administration. Wow. Democrat Representative Jerry Connolly of Virginia introduced the legislation and argued that federal workers were subjected to the Trump administration's cruel personal attacks, unsafe work environments, pay freezes, government shutdowns, sequestration cuts, furloughs and mindless across the board hiring freezes. Sequestration happened under Barack Obama, by the way, but why bother getting the facts entirely correct? Well, this pay increase uh, would be in addition to the 4.6% wage increase that Joe Biden implemented last week via the an executive order. Worried that the government might be losing employees to the private sector, the National um, Actives and Retired Federal Employees Association President William Shackelford, he contended that pay hikes are needed to counteract a tightening labor market and increasing private sector pay, rising costs of living, and an impending federal retirement wave. Or maybe this will serve as a great opportunity for downsizing a bloated government bureaucracy that wastefully spends taxpayers' hard-earned dollars. Well, California has surpassed one million drivers licensed in the state who are not in the state legally. California's first effectively declared itself a sanctuary state back in 2015 with the enactment of a law giving illegal aliens the right to obtain a driver's license. According to Cal Matters, almost four out of 10 illegal aliens now living in the Golden State have acquired said licenses, totaling over one million. Of course, what starts in California never stays in California, as several other Democrat-run states, including Massachusetts, have passed similar laws. This scheme to uh, give driver's licenses to those uh, illegally living in the U.S. has served to draw millions more Uh, to America, as if uh, it affords them the ability to more easily gain employment and movement across the country. It's also resulted in an increasing number of drunk driving incidents. Last year alone, more than 17,500 with DUI convictions were arrested by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Irrespective of the damage those uh, policies have uh, had on American citizens, the ultimate goal, of course, is to eventually turn all these individuals into voters, thereby growing a political base Driver's licenses one day, voter registration the next. A recently released video shows Memphis police violently beating Tyree Nichols in the traffic stop that led to his death. CNN's Van Jones says Nichols' death might have been driven by racism despite black cops being charged. The Paul Pelosi video shows the hammer attack after police arrived. It's not pleasant. And a California doctor who treated the mortally wounded Ashley Babbitt after she was shot outside the House of Representatives on January 6, 2021, was arrested by the FBI on four criminal charges stemming from his time at the U.S. Capitol. Charges have been dropped against Ashley Babbitt's mother, Mickey Whithoft, and radical activists uh, illegally protested outside the associate uh, justice Amy Coney Barrett's home. Still no consequence. Swalwell claims his relationship with the suspected Chinese spy didn't compromise U.S. security, and we can take his word for that. Biden says the U.S. will compete with China on strategic minerals. However, he just kneecapped our ability to do just that. Well, nobody's watching. CNN's ratings have plunged even further. And the Minnesota legislature passed a barbaric bill to legalize abortions up to and until birth. Utah's governor signed a bill banning gender transition treatment for minors. And the Florida School Board changed its policy, now requiring students to use bathrooms based on their biological sex. Such an innovation.
At least seven Israelis were killed in a shooting attack at a Jerusalem synagogue. Well, on this day in history, 1933, Adolf Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. Also in 1933, the first episode of the Lone Ranger radio program is broadcast on station WXYZ in Detroit. 1945, on this day in history, during World War II, a Soviet submarine torpedoes the German ship MV Wilhelm Gustloff in the Balkan Sea, Baltic Sea rather, with a loss of more than 9,000 lives. Most of them war refugees, roughly 1,000 people survived. On this day in history, 1948, Mahatma Gandhi, 78, is fatally shot in New Delhi by Natharam Gotsi, a Hindu extremist. Gotsi and a co-conspirator would be executed. 1962, two members of the Frying Willendas Highwire Act, they're killed when their seven-person pyramid collapses during a performance at the State Fair Coliseum in Detroit. On this day in history, 1968, the Tet Offensive becomes begins during the Vietnam War as communist forces launch surprise attacks against South Vietnamese towns and cities. And although the communists are beaten back, the offensive is seen as a major setback for the U.S. and its allies. The following year, 1969, the Beatles stage an impromptu concert atop Apple Records headquarters in London in what would be the group's last public performance. On this day in history, 1972, British soldiers gunned down 13 Roman Catholic civil rights marchers in Northern Ireland on what would become known as Bloody Sunday. 1981, an estimated 2 million New Yorkers turn out for a ticker tape parade honoring the American hostages freed from Iran. 1993, Los Angeles inaugurates its Metro Red Line, the city's first modern subway. 2009, Michael Steele is elected the first black chairman of the Republican National Committee. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, an appeals court in Florence, Italy, reinstates the guilty verdict against U.S. student Amanda Knox and her ex-boyfriend for the 2007 murder of her British roommate, Meredith Kircher. Knox would be exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court in 2015. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz is reintroducing his bill to reinstate military service members who were fired over President Biden's vaccine mandates, vowing he will never stop fighting for them. Cruz, uh, hopped on the phone with Fox News Digital on Monday to talk about his military service members' restitution bill. It's called the Americans Act that he's reintroducing to the Senate with 12 of his colleagues. The Texas Republican said the GOP won a tremendous victory in the NDAA, but by finally stopping Joe Biden's abusive COVID vaccine mandates that he had used to fire thousands of soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines and Coast Guardmen. Now, that victory is worth celebrating, he said. That no more will service men and service women be forced to choose between continuing to defend our nation and following their own conscience on questions of religious liberty and personal health choices. Unfortunately, that legislation that was passed was perspective only. The Texas senator continued, it stopped the mandate going forward, but it didn't provide relief to the thousands of service men and women who were wrongfully fired, who were targeted for demotion, for forced uh, retirements or termination. My legislation would provide relief to every one of those servicemen and women, would provide an uh, avenue for those who want to return to service to be reinstated at their prior rank with full benefits, and for those who choose not to return to service, 
to ensure that their discharge is honorable rather than merely a general discharge and uh, ensure that they receive the full benefits that they have earned defending our nation. Well, Senator Josh Hawley has introduced a long overdue bill that would ban members of Congress from trading and owning stocks. To this, we say it's about time. But if the best part of the bill is uh, what it does, the second best part is surely its name, the Preventing Elected Leaders from Owning Securities and Investment Act. Yes, it's called the Pelosi Act. Preventing Elected Leaders from Owning Securities and Investment Act. Members of Congress and their spouses, Holly Trumpeted, shouldn't be using their position to get rich on the stock market. Today, I'm introducing legislation to ban stock trading and ownership by members of Congress. I call it the Pelosi Act. Well, Senator Hawley and the the acronym are being congratulated by supporters, but uh, bad on the um, other 534 members of Congress for having uh, not beaten him to said act. Well, far left activists sang, cursed and shouted as they protested numerous political causes outside the home of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Activists with Our Rights D.C. marched into Barrett's family's quiet Virginia neighborhood on Sunday evening, despite a federal law that prohibits picketing or parading in or near a building or residence occupied or used by such judge, juror, witness or court officer with the intent of intimidating or influencing that person. Doesn't matter that that's what the federal law says. Cut her time short, they chanted as they uh, processed. First, they shouted presumably to Barrett about the death of Tyree Nichols and racial injustice. Say his name, they chanted. Then they quickly moved on to abortion. My body, my choice, my body belongs to me, they sang into megaphones as one of the activists beat a drum. Well, the Daily Signal reportedly uh, asked the um, activists without response why they were protesting in the Barrett's neighborhood. They similarly would not address questions about the protests effect on her seven children. There are many other children who uh, reside in the neighborhood as well. The activists had been uh, protesting outside the homes of justices for almost nine months since May. The leak of the draft opinion in, in citing are indicating that uh, Roe versus Wade would be overturned. Frequent protests include uh, Sadie Coons, Melissa Barlow, Nikki Enfield, and Nadine Seiler. Many of these protesters have ties to Shut Down D.C. and Ruth Sent Us. The organizations that have posted the addresses of the Supreme Court justices online offered bounties for sightings of the justices and called for continuing uh, protests intended to make the justices uncomfortable with overturning Roe versus Wade. Well, only last weekend... Uh, at a Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home in Chevy Chase, Maryland, uh, a protest was held. As has been the case in recent months, Kavanaugh's home was heavily guarded by U.S. Marshals standing between the protesters who were on the sidewalk and his home. There usually isn't a whole lot of space between one and the other. Conversely, Barrett's home did not have U.S. Marshals stationed in front of the house, perhaps because the demonstrations at Barrett's home are typically smaller than that of Kavanaugh's. Well, it was observed two or three policemen as well as two U.S. Marshals on Sunday. The authorities did not stand in front of the house, but largely stood by their vehicles far away from the house and the protesters. Well, after uh, processing around the neighborhood several times, the protesters marched back to their meeting place, a middle school parking lot. Well, both uh, Republican Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and former Republican Maryland Governor Larry Hogan begged the Department of Justice in May to enforce federal law protecting Supreme Court justices. 
The Department of Justice didn't fully respond to the request until, oh, the 8th of June, the same day that authorities arrested Nicholas Rosk and charged him with attempting to kill Justice Brett Kavanaugh, but refused to discuss whether the protesters had broken the law, citing longstanding policy. We thought there would be more urgency. That's what one uh, former Republican Maryland governor, Larry Hogan, spokesman said, Jared, uh, with the uh, the Daily Signal. In this climate, there are any number of threats, both specific and vague, against public officials, and we thought there would be more urgency about protecting the uh, perimeter of the justices' homes and, by extension, their neighborhoods. But that was not the case. On July 2nd, the Supreme Court's chief security officer, Gail Curley, asked top Maryland and Virginia officials to enforce their laws protecting the justices. Since then, law enforcement have continued to stand outside the justices' home as the protests take place. Youngkin's office continues to monitor the situation and has directed Virginia State Police to be at the ready and in constant coordination with local authorities. Governor Youngkin will continue to push for every resource of federal law enforcement, including the U.S. Marshals, to be involved while the justices continue to be denied the right to live peacefully in their homes. And until now, Maryland has used county statutes and laws on distortedly conduct and noise ordinances to keep the peace. Meanwhile, did anyone notice, and this was brought to my attention by the Taxpayers Association of Oregon on their webpage, OregonWatchdog.com, has anyone noticed that the first key people arrested in the Atlanta riots were mostly from out of state? Five of the six were not Georgians. Call it riot tourism. It's became uh, become popular since the uh, start of the pandemic and the summer riots of, what, 2020? Oregon suffered the same during our uh, riots as many of the rioters were from out of state. We had uh, one guy who fly to Portland, and in two weeks he was a— Um, A protest uh, breaking into a building, smashing things only to be arrested and released a few hours later, where he rejoined the protest and tried to break into a federal courthouse and was, wait for it, arrested again the same night. Two arrests in a single night. One 24-year-old, Jacob uh, Michael Gaines, flew from Texas to join Portland rioters and struck a police officer with a hammer. Um, Malik Fard Muhammad, 25, flew in from Indiana to um, distribute baseball hats to rioters and himself throw firebombs at police officers. One article noted people in Portland and protesting uh, at, at the Portland protest were being arrested from Minnesota, California and Washington. So if you're looking for something to do this summer, apparently riot tourism is uh, one option available. Well, a resolution, a resolution has been introduced in the House of Representatives and in the U.S. Senate by Representative Andrew Clay Clyde and Senator Mike Braun. It would make January 22nd, the day that the U.S. Supreme Court issued its Roe v. Wade decision, the Day of Tears. Since Roe v. Wade, the evils of abortion have unlawfully terminated more than 60 million innocent lives, all precious, worth saving, and made in the perfect image of God. Clyde said in his press release, I'm proud to introduce this resolution to recognize the anniversary of this dreadful decision as the day of tears to honor and mourn the loss of these unborn children. I'm proud to introduce the Senate resolution recognizing the over 60 million loss to abortion since the Supreme Court's 1973 decision and calling for flags to be flown at half staff in their memory. Braun wrote, On Tuesday, Clyde gave a speech on the House floor about the resolution. He also discussed the Protect the Unborn Act that he had introduced with 90 co-sponsors. 
That bill would block and defund uh, President Biden's pro-abortion executive orders. This past Sunday on January 22nd, our nation mourned the 50th anniversary of Roe v.ersus Wade, the, tr- the treacherous ruling that paved the way for the murder of more than 60 million innocent babies, all precious, all worth saving, and all made in the perfect image of God, he said. Thankfully, the victorious Dobbs ruling overturned Roe v.ersus Wade last year, rightfully returning the issue of abortion back to the states, he said. However, while we champion this momentous win in the fight for the unborn, we cannot forget the millions of lives lost to the evils of abortion. He went on, Today I introduce a resolution to recognize a day of tears. We'll follow that uh, resolution in the House and the Senate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night and join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.